it's hard to think back 50 years ago because it oh my god is it 50 years since i started it is 50 years <laughs> this is city am unregulated i'm emma hazlett this week we go when business murder and scar collides you know not not very many people get to sell a a business and 25 years later buy it back. Chris Wright, co-founder of the iconic record label Chrysalis. There was a reason why we sold it, there was a reason why we bought it back and you know, it it was uh, it was a very poignant moment. When I got back from the States I listened to the, the Hunky Dory album and I thought mm, big mistake Terry, I thought it was a <laughs> It was a great record, and it was, and, you know, there's no doubt we could have had him signed to us. You know, the key thing is, can you see them on stage at Madison Square Gardens? I mean, if, if, we, if we thought they, they were limited to the point where they couldn't really become that big an artist, then we, we kind of weren't interested in them. Thank you all very kindly. Well, I'm knackered. See you again next year, eh? You're listening to Unregulated, City AM's professional development podcast. On this podcast, we chat entrepreneurial stories, how to be better at your job, and how to take the next step in your career. The man in the studio today is probably one of the biggest names you've never heard of in UK music. He signed Blondie, he signed The Specials, he's the man behind Jethro Tull, but he also did things like Midsummer Murders, he created half of the UK's radio stations, and he even owned QPR and Wasps. It's Chris Wright, co-founder of Chrysalis Records. I wanted to kick off literally by talking about your kind of route into the music biz because you started off at business school and then went into music from there. That sounds very sensible. Well, I started off at Manchester University and I became the social secretary. Okay. So I was organising all the entertainment and it was, you know, very interesting and a lot of fun and a lot of, you know, developments and things happening in the music business, especially in the northeast. You had Liverpool just 30, 40 miles away and everything that was happening there with the Mersey sound and the Beatles and all the other Liverpool groups. And it was just a very vibrant uh, place to be and I happened to be thrown in at the deep end in the middle of all of that. Did you know that you were in an important place at an important time? I don't know. I don't think you ever... You'd, you probably never really know at the time that it's an important place. Uh, I think probably... Sometimes maybe yes, and maybe maybe I thought it was a little bit important, but it's only in hindsight that you look back on any era in in any sort of field and think, wow, that was something really special. You studied business. Did you go in with the intention to start a record label? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, my degree was in politics and modern history. After my degree course, I nearly went to the United States to do... Uh, postgraduate work in American politics. But because I was running the entertainment at the university, 
the attraction of staying in Manchester was really too great. And so I got a place at the Manchester Business School and then I did study business there. And also by this time I was running with a friend, uh, a club. One of his first entrepreneurial stints. We took over a, a little old funky working man's club that normally had strippers and, <laughs> and blue comedians on and we took it over for a Thursday night and put on some really great music and it was absolutely packed to the rafters with students. And I was doing that for myself outside of the university work and making quite a bit of money out of it. So I had a double reason for wanting to stay in Manchester. One, I was having fun, and two, I was actually making some money. So uh, that's why I thought no to the University of Chicago and yes to the Manchester Business School. So what are your strongest memories of, of running that club? The I think there were so many people in that you got wet with all the perspiration <laughs> dripping off the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, my partner, whose idea it was to do it, actually, and he had he had actually worked a bit in London with Giorgio Gamelski and and who managed the Yardbirds and with with the, the Yardbirds organisation, and he was pretty locked into the London blues scene, and he he was very keen on trying to develop something similar in Manchester. So I have to give a lot of credit to him for doing it. He just thought that he needed me to to find the right groups which I'm not sure if he did or if he didn't, but I did find the right groups. And we'd go back to his uh, digs afterwards about three in the morning and divvy up the money. And so that was a very nice moment as well, I suppose. And that's where they banned that would become to known as 10 years after. Because the club was going so well... Eventually I got groups calling me up wanting to play there, not because we paid a lot of money, because we didn't, but because it was such a great gig and, you know, where they would have a really great audience and they could do whatever they wanted to do. And one of the groups that came up to play there, uh, you know, my, my partner in the club said, God, you know, this group's great, the guitarist is fantastic, you should sign them up, and so I did. So I've got that to thank him for as well. And they became, we changed the name to 10 years after, they became a really big group through the late 60s and early to mid-70s, one of the stars of the Woodstock uh, Festival. Uh, You know, like a 20,000-seat arena group at a time when, you know, virtually no-one played arenas. And um, I moved to London with them and another group that I knew from up there called the John Evans Band from Blackpool and their manager came to London and wanted me to take them over and uh, they became Jethro Tull and we couldn't get a record deal for Jethro Tull so we just put them in the studio and made a record ourselves. No one would release it so we released it ourselves. And that's basically how Chrysalis Records started. Well, we had Procol Harum in, in the early days and Leo Sayer and uh, Blondie, obviously, and Ultravox, Spandau Ballet, Huey Lewis and the News, the specials, Sinead O'Connor, Pat Benatar. Me, me, 
in the in the late sixties, early seventies, they were all in a certain genre, and then which was basically blues-based rock and and so forth. Although Procol Harum were different, they were all very interesting groups that were essentially, you know, album groups and and live concert groups rather than pop groups. We were never any good with pop music. And then Blondie became when punk came in. We had Billy Idol. That's another. Sorry, Billy. We had Billy <laughs> Idol and Generation X. And then as things developed into the new Romantics, Spandau Ballet and Ultravox that were also part of that movement. So they were all the all the artists we had were part of a genre, but they were part of the genre of that particular time. thing to understand about the music then which is different now in a world of post-grime funk slash made-up genres is that the label mattered to everyone consumer brand industry promoter but in those days labels were very important and the artists wanted to be on a certain label because that label spoke to the audience and said i am this kind of artist and the chrysalis label spoke to people and people wanted to be on the label because they felt that their music was was the kind of music that you would associate with chrysalis and so it was the labels were very genre conscious and a, a group that was not right for the genre of that label probably wouldn't have sat comfortably with the label it was quite a major departure for a label to step outside of its genre and sign someone that was a little bit different that like when we signed leo sayer because he wasn't as poppy then he was quite an alternative artist to start off with. He dressed like a clown and he'd worked with Roger Daltrey, you know, the, the lead singer from The Who. He wrote a lot of songs for Roger Daltrey's solo album. So he was very credible, but he was not in the blues rock uh, genre that we were more associated with. It was a big departure for us. It was a bit of like a statement, but groups did try and stay within their genre if you're on atlantic or island you know or you know most labels you you expected a, a certain kind of record was it you enticing the bands or was it the bands trying to entice you it's always a bit of both i mean if if you know you get bands that you know every company in in the world's trying to sign and you've got to entice them like um, such as who well i mean for example when we signed spandau Ballet, everyone was trying to sign them when we signed the specials, everyone was trying to sign them. But in in the case of other, you know, other artists, there may be artists that no one else is trying to sign, and you know, they're they're desperately keen to come to you. In the case of genres, I mean, in Blondie, we're originally signed to what was a bubblegum pop company called Private Stock in New York, and obviously for a credible, you know, write their own material, really edgy punk based group. You know, it wasn't right to be on a, on a bubblegum pop label, which is why the group essentially wanted to be off that label and why coming to us was a very good move, not just for us, but also for them, because being with us gave them some credibility, as well as the fact that we were obviously delighted to sign them. And they bought Blondie for $500,000.
So you spent two and a bit decades building up this incredibly iconic brand and label and then you sold to EMI. Yes. How did that come about? What were the conversations in the boardroom at the time? Well, yeah, good question. But um, we got to the point that we were almost like too big to be an independent and not big enough to be a major. We were we were like subscale to, to be big and too big to be small. We, we were carrying an overhead of something like 75 people in, a, in America alone. We had to have a promotion man in every town. We had, we had to have offices in New York, LA, and maybe by that time Nashville as well. We, we were carrying a really large overhead. We got into an era when artists stopped making records once every year or two and started making them once every three or four years. And we went through a period of, of having, you know, not enough adequate flow of records to release to to justify the overhead and we and we ran into financial difficulties and originally we made a deal with EMI to joint venture with them uh, but it's hard to joint venture when one company is very large and the other is very small and it resulted in them buying us out how did you feel when that happened very very unhappy um what did you do afterwards uh, I decided that we hadn't got the record label, but we'd, uh, you know, I'd re-engineer the company and do different things. So that's what we did. I kept the music publishing company. It was just the record label that EMI bought. We were out of the record business, but we weren't out of the music business. We had a burgeoning uh, TV facilities business. We had an investment in a radio station and we decided to develop the company into television production and radio stations and then to re-emerge in the record business as soon as the contractual situation allowed, which is what we did. Hey, Emma here. I've got another awesome podcast for you to listen to when you're done here. Inspired by episode 22's Millennials to Millionaires, I would like to introduce you to the Millennial Money Matters podcast. What amazes me most about Chris is his entrepreneurial spirit. I should care about them. My favourite thing about it is that they unashamedly call out jargon. They literally hit a New York Stock Exchange style starting bell every time anyone says anything bad. With interviews and features on how to get your head around the likes of Moneybox, Trussell and Monzo, I found that it's a useful way to wade through the changing way we're interacting with financial services. Check it out on Apple Podcasts and indeed in all the places podcasts exist. Millennial Money Matters. And I should say at this juncture that you are the man behind one of the most unfortunate villages in the whole of England, which is Midsummer. Well, yes, I mean, it was uh, that was part of Chrisley's television, Midsummer Murders, yes. And how did it come about that you started doing all these different things? What you know, what was the thought process behind that? Yeah, I don't know really. All I knew is that most of my life I'd been in the record business and and then there came a point in time for three years when I was banned from being in the record business. So I wasn't going to sit on my hands and do, do nothing. So I thought of what else I could do. And uh, we had bought a, a television outside broadcast company and also a, t- a small independent TV studio uh, we did work for MTV. We provided satellite uh, links for companies. It was a like a you know a little business as an adjunct, and we used that really to segue into becoming a 
TV production company, and we built up probably the first major super indie TV com- company. Chrysalis was then sold to BMG in 2010. Yes, we'd sold. I mean, we sold, we sold the TV production company in the in the mid noughties. Uh, that became a company called All Three Media, which is a very large TV independent production company. We sold the radio stations in 2007. We owned, we started Heart in London and Heart in the Midlands. We owned Galaxy. We owned LBC. We sold that and. And we focused back on the music publishing and on a record label called Echo, which was we couldn't couldn't be Chrysalis, so we called it Echo. That had a CH in the middle, E C H O, you see, so there was some tenuous link there. That was sold to BMG in two thousand and eleven. And you continued running it? No. I was uh, I was on the board when it was sold to BMG and I was a consultant and a director, but I didn't run it. And I was just really there for transitional purposes. But last summer, you got Chrysalis back. Last summer, what we bought back, that's me and Jeremy Lascelles that used to work for me at Chrysalis before it was sold to BMG, and Robin Miller, the record producer, and Robert Devereux, who was part of Virgin, the four of us bought back the, the, the bulk, but not all, of the Chrysalis Record Company, which had been sold to EMI in 1991. So 91, 01, 11, 16, pretty well 25 years later, we managed to buy the company back. The, well, you know, not not very many people get to sell a, a business and 25 years later buy it back. So, you know, it was there was a reason why we sold it. There was a reason why we bought it back. And you know, it it was a, it was a very poignant moment. Were you welcome back in? Um, it was. It's funny seeing people that I haven't seen for a very long time. You know, people have changed, and you know, but actually, it's great because we were family, and it's now, you know, family again. So let's talk about the elephant in the room, David Bowie. What happened there? And the fact of the matter is that we did, we signed David Bowie to our music publishing company as a songwriter. Um, we did that. He had, you know, people say, oh, we thought he was a one-hit wonder. Well, he was at the time a one-hit wonder. He had had a hit with uh, Space Oddity. That was two or three years before. He hadn't done anything since, but we felt that he was a very good songwriter, and we signed him as a songwriter to our publishing company. He made a record that didn't have a record company, which became the Hunky Dory album, which my ex-partner listened to whilst I was in the States and decided that he didn't like it as a record. And it was him him and his decision that we shouldn't uh, sign David Bowie to a record contract. When I got back from the States, I listened to the, the Hunky Dory album and I thought, Mm, big mistake, Terry. I thought it was a, <laughs> it was a great record, and it was. And you know, there's no doubt we could have had him signed to us as a recording artist, and we didn't. And that was a big mistake. But in ter- in fairness to Terry, it was Terry's, uh, in, it was at Terry's instigation that we signed Blondie. So you know, win win one, lose one, kind of thing. <laughs> Swings of roundabouts. Yeah. I mean, the one that I would have been heartbroken about because I'm of that generation is the Spice Girls. Actually, we did have the Spice Girls in the office. 
And uh, so, so the Spice the Spice Girls came into the office uh, to, I think it was it was to sign them as uh, to sign them to our music publishing company. They already had a record deal. I know that they that they wanted to. I think they wanted two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, which was a lot of money uh, in those days. I didn't. I didn't see them. They came in and they came into Jeremy and LaSalle's office. They they caused a bit of havoc, and it was apparently quite a lot of fun. And uh, Jeremy did offer them, I think, two hundred thousand. He didn't offer them the two hundred and fifty, and they got the two hundred and fifty from from someone else. And afterwards, I I said, you know, how how did you let that one go? And he he just said, Chris, if I told you I wanted to pay a quarter of a million pounds to sign to sign five girls that couldn't sing and didn't write, you'd have thought <laughs> I'd gone completely crazy. Who's your favourite Spice Girl? Who's my favourite Spice Girl? Um, Jerry. I mean, I just want to rant, basically, about music, modern music now. How has the music industry changed since you started? Do you mean the music or the industry itself? Let's start with the industry and move on to the music. Well, I mean, the, I industry, the industry's thing. changed, you know, completely. I mean, in the, you know, it's hard to think back 50 years ago because, oh, my God, is it 50 years since I started? It is 50 years. <laughs> it is exactly... Here at the moment of realisation. It is exactly 50 years. It's exactly 50 years since uh, I moved to London from Manchester. Well, I mean, in those days, we were still coming out of the era of 78 RPM shellac singles. The LP was relatively new. You know, we've gone from LPs to cassettes to CDs, uh, you know, with a few other things thrown in. And then we went to uh, downloading and now we're at streaming. It's a it's a different world in terms of the delivery system. It's a different world in terms of the people that populate the, the industry. I mean, there was, uh, you know, early on in like the 60s, you know, everybody was just a complete music junkie. There was no, there were very few financial controls, legal controls or any of the business controls that you exist expect in the business it was in its infancy it was populated by you know all kinds of weird and wonderful people from gangsters down to you know people that were just completely nothing but musos um it's now you know very much an industry that is run by people in suits a lot of the time and you know people don't crawl in at midday having been out at a gig till three in the morning, everybody gets into the office on time. It's a much more professional industry. The de- so the delivery system has completely changed. The way that people the people engage with music has changed. Another b- major thing that's changed is that, you know, in the late 60s and, say, 70s, there was nothing else that, you know, young people were interested in. Television was basically crap. And, you know, there were no such things as social media and devices or anything like that. You know, when you were at home, you went went on your iPad or your iPhone, you know, or on Twitter or anything like that. You were basically listening to music. And that was it. And the music, you know, the music spoke for you and it spoke for the generation. I listen to music now and I just think compared with what I used to listen to, it's crap. 
And I don't know if I'm just a woman in her 30s and this happens to everyone or if it truly is crap. And you've been around in the industry for a long time, so you must know. It's not all crap. And there is some... There is, is it crapper than usual? Well, I was going to say, it's not all crap. It, there is some good, probably not as much really good music. I think that, that the artists that came through in the 60s and the 70s, they didn't happen overnight. You know, artists in those days happened on their third album and they happened having started off playing in clubs to 50 people. And, you know, they didn't just suddenly emerge and then be on stage at Madison Square Gardens or Wembley or something like that. They they paid their dues. A lot of them in the 60s had started off doing Hamburg, including the Beatles or 10 years after that were the first group with Chrysalis. You know, and you were in Hamburg, you played from like 9 o'clock in the evening till four in the morning, 45 minutes on, 15 minutes off. You know, you didn't do that unless you could play. If you couldn't play, you know, someone else would take your your position and it made groups really good and it made them different. They wrote all their own material. They developed their own genres of music. It was a different kind of world. You know, you don't get someone like Bob Dylan or Paul Simon or or Mick Jagger and Keith Richard going on The X Factor or Britain's Got Talent and being told, you wear this, you stand there, you don't bother singing, we've got loads of people in the background doing that for you. It's not, you know, that's not... And that's, unfortunately, the world that, you know, we live in to a very large extent. But then there are artists that are different and do write their own songs and do come through. You know, Ed, Ed Sheeran would never have got on The X Factor. Has music streaming broken the way we listen to music? Well, yes, it has, because, I mean, we, we used to listen... We didn't, we didn't listen to albums even, we listened to sides of albums. You know, you would play one side and it had a certain mood. I mean, Rod Stewart made an album, Atlantic Crossing, that had a com- an album of one, one mood on one side and another mood on the other side, a more rocky mood on one side and a more subtle mood on the other side. So we played sides. When CDs came in, uh, you didn't play sides. You could play the whole album, which was even better. But now I don't know how many people ever get the chance to listen to an album. When we made albums in those days, we made albums. We spent as much time trying to figure out the running order of the album so it ebbed and flowed. It took you on peaks and troughs and highs and lows and develop your mood through the whole of the 40 minutes. We took as long doing that as almost making the album itself. It was a huge conversation. Well, I don't know if people do that now because I'm not sure that people ever listen to an album from beginning to end. And you think about great albums, you know, think about something like Dark Side of the Moon or something like that. You know, if it's it's supposed to be listened to as an album. It's not supposed to be listened to one track here, another track there, and then throw in something else by somebody else. And, you know, so yes, we 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 don't listen to albums. We might listen to collections of songs by a particular artist, but we don't think albums. We think singles and tracks. And maybe if we're lucky with something like an Adele or something like that, with a very big selling record collections of songs so you said before that when political times are bad or when the kids don't like pics that's when the music revolution comes is that what's going to happen with donald trump i would like to think that there is a very good chance of that happening because it is absolutely true that you look at look at some of the great music and it came out of you know difficult eras that you know the 
you know, you you can go back to Dylan in in the early and mid sixties. You can go back go back to all of the music that came out during the time of the Vietnam War, and the you know the reaction to things like you know the massacre at Kent State and uh, University and things like that. You know, the specials were very much about the 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 recession we had in England in in the early eighties with Ghost Town. You know. And uh, too much, too young about uh, teenage pregnancies and so forth, and we don't have much of that around today. And people are still in a comfort zone. I mean, you know, in America, okay, God knows what's happening with Donald Trump. I mean, and you know, it's like goes from you know one kind of weird thing to another. You th- you kind of think sometimes, oh, he's beginning to get control of it and it's not going to be too bad. And then bingo, he goes and fires the, the head of the CIA. Or, you know, <laughs> FBI. And, and, here, and here with, um, you know, with, with Brexit, you know, we're still, you know, everybody says, oh, Brexit's great. Well, you know, we haven't got Brexit. You know, we'll find out when actually it does happen. And, uh, you know, and it'll probably be a very different world we're living in. And, the you know, who knows? We could We could be in for... A, a huge recession there could be you know lack of opportunities and it could spring people that you know want to write about it and it could give you a you know a public that wants to hear about it um, one of the songs that I've, has kind of been rattling around my brain as we've been talking because you mentioned her earlier Sinead O'Connor's yeah. Black Boys on Mopeds yeah. I mean that's a beautiful protest song yes I mean it's a great it, it's a, it is a great song I mean for people that don't know it's a song about why you know the police will pick up a black boy on a moped more than they'll pick up in the street anybody else and which is probably still as true today as it was in then which would have been in the kind of about I mean about 87 or 88 or something like that i mean when 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 we launched the the um nothing compares to you the the uh which was you know the huge track on yeah. on the second Sinead O'Connor album Sinead was always a very edgy protest kind of artist her first album was that kind of album we came out with the second album with 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 that great song and you know with a fantastic video with the teardrop coming out of her eye it was stunning and you know her with the shaved head as well it was stunning and she became it was a big pop record I said at the time, I was overruled. I said at the time, the second the second single had to be Black Boys on Mopeds, because she wasn't a pop artist, and she didn't want to be a pop artist. She wasn't comfortable with that, and we had to take her back to her roots, and we had to establish her for what she was. And I think had we done that, I think we could we would have achieved so much more. Because actually, I think ever since then she's been spending her time kind of rebelling, trying to tell people, "No, I'm not a pop artist. I am a I am a serious protest kind of artist." We could have done that by releasing that track. It wouldn't have been that big a hit, but the track we did release wasn't that big a hit anyway so we might as well have released it and who knows and the, and the version we'd have probably released would have been just one of her strumming the guitar and singing the song it, you know she did it i think on one of the late shows on tv and it was magical and i think you know the company at that point was i was so was bigger than me making all the decisions it was it was a decision that should have been made that i that was wrong at the time and i feel very upset for her that we didn't insist on that being the record because it, it it would have really cemented her position in an area that she would have been more comfortable being in. England's not the mythical and the 
So if music, media and the creative business world wasn't enough, you also have played the sports business game. You owned a basketball team, you owned Wasps, the rugby team, you owned QPR. Is sports now only a billionaire's game? I mean, the the, the, the stakes are just far too high for some person of my meagre means. That is 100% true. It's become a billionaire's game. It could well be true of rugby as well, never mind football, but certainly at football. I mean, I know I know at QPR I probably lost £5 million a year. Uh, you know, I'd find that tough to lose £5 million a year now anyway. But, you know, if they're, if they're not losing 10 times that at QPR now, I would be surprised because I just know how the, the economics of things work out. It's It's very tough and... You know, you can make money at the very, very top end, but then, you know, you're talking about a team that you're probably going to spend, you know, a billion buying in the first place, and then, you know, a few hundred million stocking up with new players, and then you've still got to build a new stadium in most cases. I'm afraid that, you know, this is billionaires. And I think it's kind of sad because, you know, people come in and buy a team. Look what happened to, say, Leighton Orient. You know, it, it sounds like fun, but then when you lose interest, you have a huge problem because no one else can take it over. I mean, that's that's the problem that a lot of these teams are in now. Look at Blackburn Rovers with the Venkies. Who can take over Blackburn Rovers? They're probably in League One next season. They're going to be losing a lot of money. They've got, they've got to want to get back into the Championship, if not the Premier League. It requires a huge investment, and probably you know the Venkies have probably sunk you know a few hundred million into it, and that you know that for a team that's basically struggling. I mean, who's going to pick up that particular ball? And the ones that do, you know, there's been issues with, with Chinese and Thais and, you know, and not to, to, you know, pinpoint any particular country. could be Americans or wherever. I mean, people that don't really have any real thorough understanding of the culture of the game and they get involved with a team thinking this is great fun. Well, actually, most of the time it's not great fun. And when they find out it's not great fun, they think, you know, sod this. And then you get a latent orient. Was that your experience then, not great fun? At QPR, it was very tough. I mean, they'd just been relegated from the Premier League uh, with the lowest points total of any team in the Premier League. Uh, it was like trying to catch a falling knife. And I think we tried very hard and it didn't work out. We had a lot of bad luck. Uh, I also think that as a personality, you know, I am not best equipped to... To be the owner of a football team, you need someone that's a lot tougher and a lot more, you know, hard-nosed than I am. It's one thing thinking, you know, you if you're working with talented artists and and writers and directors and and so forth, 
you know, you have you have one kind of set of skills. I happen to be, I think, quite good at dealing with creative people. Well, in the football world, you're not really dealing with creative people. Most of the time you're dealing with football agents, and I don't think creative is a term that you normally associate <laughs> with football agents. Do you feel like you got out of the sport at the wrong time? Uh, I got in. I thought. I thought the time I got into it, it was in theory a good time to get into it because it was the, the beginning of the era of the Premier League, and there were opportunities. Did I get out at the wrong time? In in, in a way, yes. In so far as you know, think the clubs are worth a great deal more now. But I got out of of QPR 15 years ago. Well, the values of the teams have gone up enormously in those 15 years. But how much would I have been spending each year to be able to to get to the point to have something where you could extract that amount of value? So you know, I couldn't have afforded I couldn't have afforded to stay in for those fifteen years. So I I really had no option anyway. How can you tell when taking a punt, an entrepreneurial punt, for example, starting a TV station, is worth it? At the at the end of the day, it's down to gut feel. I don't think there's any other way of dealing with it other than gut feel. I mean, it's it's not something that sits very well with people in the city when you know everything's got to be researched and you know run the numbers and everything like that. In the kind of businesses that I've been involved in, you could never run numbers and, and uh, you just have to think gut feel. You know, it's the same as you know that 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 artist that you know that you think is capable of writing great music and making great records you know you you can't you can't base an investment decision on anything other than how how great is their talent and then you meet them and figure how smart they are and you know then you make a decision accordingly i mean as someone who's done all these who's worked in all these different sectors is there a time that entrepreneurial spirit ends like is there a limit to entrepreneurialism well i think it's a it's a bit like you know then the average age of a combat fighter was 19. That was a Paul Hardcastle record that was a big number one for us. It's uh, it's absolutely true that, you know, when you get much older than 19 and someone says, right, get out of the trench and start charging against those people with, you know, with machine guns firing at you, you know, you don't need to be much older than 19 to think, forget that, I'm not doing that. Um, you know, and I think, you know, in terms of entrepreneurial spirit, you get to you you know when you get when you get way past sort of 65 or something you know it's it gets tougher um because you haven't got quite as much energy to put into something you need a lot of energy to make things work you have both mental energy and physical energy and and time as well days and time you mm-hmm. can't just sort of play with something if you've got a great entrepreneurial idea you know, it's got to be like you would do it if you didn't get paid for it because you just feel so committed to it. How do you know when to give up on an artist? I think, you know, going back to, you know, going back, you know, a few decades ago, if you believed in the artist, you'd probably never give up on them. And it would, and that's what we would do. We would just keep going and going and going. It took a long time to, to give up on an artist. I think the way the companies are structured now, you know, you believe in the things. artist, you put a lot of money into it, and if it doesn't work out on the f- first album, you know, you've got you've got the finance director telling you to drop them, and that's it. You know, which is why some of the the more creative, different artists take lo- that, that take longer to develop. Why they're not coming through because mm-hmm. they need time, and if you can't if you don't can't 
have that time if you're not given that time unfortunately you know you're going to lose that opportunity if, you know the next Bob Dylan is sitting in his garage what can he do now in 2017 to become famous not necessarily to think I want to become famous I think all he's got to do is just develop his talent to write great songs and make great records and hopefully he will find someone that will be able to hold his hand and point him in the right direction to be able to develop his career. I do say that, on the whole, artists get the managers they deserve and managers get the artists they deserve. You know, there are talented artists out there that, that really are never going to make it and they'll always say, well, I had the wrong manager, I had, I had the wrong record company. And there are not there are some artists that aren't so talented that do make it because they're savvy enough to think, God, this guy, this guy, I think you know he's somebody that can help me. So you put the two together, and you have someone who is in, you know really creative, and he and he does have the right now to involve himself with the right people, and he will get there. And there are different ways of 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 reaching your audience now, a great many different ways than there used to be, but at the end of the day. If you're going to write great songs with great lyrics, with interesting music, then I'm a great believer that eventually that will find a home because that's what the world's really all about. Fantastic. Well, Chris, is there anything that you'd like to plug, such as your book, for example? Oh, that's very kind of you. Uh, it was a two or three years ago, but it's still available. It's called One Way or Another. And it is a very interesting autobiography. It does cover everything, the early days in, the, in, in music, even QPR and Wasps and uh, all the other aspects. It's a, it is a very interesting read. It's very kind of you to let me plug it. Uh, I don't expect thousands of people to go out and buy it, but it is a, but it is a very good book. So I'm very happy to be able to plug it. <laughs> well, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming. It's been a pleasure too. Thanks to Chris Wright and, of course, our podcast producer, Jamie Wareham. This has been City AM's Unregulated Podcast. Subscribe in all the usual places podcasts live and please give us a rating on iTunes if you enjoyed the show. It's a great and really easy way to tell us how much you love the show. And, of course, email advertising at audioboom.com with any questions about bringing your brand to our ABC One millennial audience. This week's Twitter conversation... Tweet me at Emma Hasler, that's with two T's, about your favourite track to twerk to. City AM Unregulated is an audio boom production. Yeah, I don't think the kids skank anymore, mate. <laughs> I think the kids are like dotty wine or twerk, yeah. Can I say twerk? <laughs> But I want to know what it's <laughs> <laughs>